0: to Romans chapter 1. I know we've sung Top ladies hymn more than once in our, well, relatively few weeks already in the book of Romans. I think we may have all of it memorized, if you don't by now, by the end of the series. And for you young people, or not so young people, If there's a word in that hymn that you don't know, see if you can find a dictionary. I don't know if they, I don't know if Syria understands the word efficacious or not. Maybe some other words they haven't plugged into the electronic dictionaries, but um, they're worthy of understanding. Romans chapter 1, I want for us just to break into the chapter and read very briefly from verse 16 familiar words that form really the theme of the epistle and bring us to the words of our text to consider today. So from verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just." shall live by faith. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Linda reading, we trust again the Lord to bless the public reading of His Word. I'll ask you again to join together as bow our heads and our hearts and ask the Lord to help us in considering His Word today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pause again, rejoicing that we have songs of redemption to sing. We often sing in this place of the song of the angels, and yet we can say, I, a sinner, saved and pardoned, have more cause than they to sing. It is true indeed. We have sung today, how then can wrath on me take place, if sheltered in thy righteousness and sprinkled with thy blood? Lord, let that truth, even as we come again to this awful text of your wrath being revealed from heaven, to be mindful that you have in Christ Jesus provided an escape And we're grateful and give you our thanks again for the power of the gospel. Bless us, Lord, as we consider these words together. We bring different hearts and different needs to this gathering. You're aware of every heart, of every thought. And so give us grace in preaching and in hearing your word. We ask it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I want to begin today by telling you of an incident that occurred this summer while I was attending a Bible faculty summit, a gathering of some college and seminary professors of conservative universities and seminaries. I can't remember if I shared a piece of this uh, in the summer or not, but if it's a repeat, well, so be it, but there was one young man that was reading a paper, and he was Offering what I gathered to be a gentle rebuke to a couple of other men there that were working on a textbook. And I gathered that they were friends and friendly with one another. But he was offering a little rebuke because they were writing what I think perhaps was a textbook, a a Bible survey as it were. And they were taking redemption as their theme. And, well, I was happy enough to hear that. Uh, We studied in our seminary the theology of redemption, uh, with very powerful arguments how that that is indeed the theme of the scriptures. But this gentleman was a little concerned that they didn't give equal time, as it were, to the theme of judgment, and that uh, redemption wasn't a theme that was big enough, and they needed a larger theme. I was hearing echoes of Charles Ryrie there, so my antenna were up. But um, he had finished, and again, this was all very gracious, and I was trying to keep a low profile that week. I was a little bit of the odd duck, the only Presbyterian, and you know, things like that. But I couldn't resist. That's maybe not the best word, but I had to raise my hand in the discussion and just ask a question. I said, can you define redemption without reference, without including the theme of judgment. I mean, after all, if redemption is a thing, we're redeemed from something. Well, I'm just, in asking the question, trying to underscore the truth of the man he was somewhat challenging. Redemption is the theme of this Bible. There are things that we learn in this Bible, there are pieces of truth with regard to God and His creation and our accountability that we can learn and discern apart from this Bible. We're going to see some of that in this very chapter in Romans 1, but how does our confession of faith open in the very first paragraph of the very first chapter? Now I've set myself up for failure, but it starts with although, and it gets into things like the light of conscience and nature and so forth, and they're sufficient to... Uh, make men understand uh, that, yes, but they're not sufficient. It's not a catechism question. This is a paragraph from the Confession itself. We don't memorize that, right? We need Scripture. Nature and conscience are enough to reveal to us our accountability, our sinfulness. And we, again, will see that unfolded in Verses soon to follow. But God has to intervene. It's what in our doctrine we call special revelation. Special revelation is redemptive in nature. It's what God brings to fallen men in order to bring them the word, the message of the gospel, of how they can come to life from the death of that they're in because of their sinfulness. Or if we borrow the psalmist's explanation of the same truth, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows His handiwork. There's not a place, there's nowhere where this voice isn't heard. But then we come a little further in the psalm and we read the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Well, Paul is going to be bringing in Romans the message of redemption. From Romans 3 and verse 21 to the rest of the book is this glorious message of the gospel, the good news. We've seen in the introduction, in the greetings, that Paul is overflowing with gospel truth even as he's Presented himself, and as he's greeted the Romans, the gospel, truth about Christ, truth about their experience in Christ, has already flowed from his pen. He's put in his thesis statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Why is Paul not ashamed? We've seen something even of the progression of Paul's thought. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation. Why and how is the gospel the power of God unto salvation? Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What makes Romans 3:21 till the end of the book so wonderful is the awful reality of the truth that is put before us from Romans 1:18 to Romans 3:20. We see here that first opening section of the book, the revelation of wrath. And so we come. And last time we began to look at this verse and we looked at it under the headings of the revelation of God's wrath and the reasons for God's wrath. And as we somewhat predicted, we only got to the first of the two points in that message. And so today we return to our text, Romans 1 and verse 18. And we look really in the the central portion of that today, He speaks here of the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We saw in God's wrath being revealed, both from the standpoint of special revelation, the Scriptures itself, the words of the prophets. We saw it even in those types and shadows and harbingers, if you will, of God's wrath that He sets before us in all of history to remember Sodom and Gomorrah, the flood, the plagues in Egypt. You could go on as we did and survey the different places in which God's wrath is foretold and there's a foretaste, if you will, of that wrath. Things that were given as Peter reminds us to learn and heed. But We come today to consider the middle part of our text, not... Merely the revelation of God's wrath, but to see the reasons for it. I want to come to consider again that portion of the text today, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It is against this that God's wrath is revealed. These are the reasons for God's wrath. Let us remember, ere we even get into these particulars. When we think of wrath, and if you weren't with us last time, we must be careful. It's a theme, sadly, it's a truth, sadly, that the church wanted to abandon more than a century ago in its liberal branches. It's a reality that is difficult even for Bible believers to wrestle with properly because we so often associate wrath with, our own experiences of wrath. We associate wrath with anger as it is expressed by sinners. But not so with God. Nonetheless, even being apart from sin, completely sinless, God is a God of wrath. As we closed our thoughts last time to try and even bring Home something of that truth. What is God angry against? He's angry against sin. And what is sin? Sin is that which once it entered His creation through man, that one created in His image to have been His regent over the rest of the created order. Sin brought death. I would say to all those that want to argue against us, come out from under the truth that God could be angry and want to blame God for being angry and all of the above and more. What is God angry against? He's angry against that which hurts us. He's angry against that which introduced death. And it would be less than God it would be less than a loving God if He did not hate evil. If He did not express His wrath against sin. Unlike us, where wrath is so rarely a real righteous indignation. In God, His wrath is a settled and active opposition to everything that is evil. And as we look at this middle part of our verse. As we read there the phrase, it's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now the commentators have to wrestle through the two terms and as is so often the case when synonymous terms are brought close together you start looking for nuances of meaning. But before we come to those two words, look at the word in front of them. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God isn't selective in expressing His wrath. He doesn't say, well, this guy only broke commandments 5 and 6. We'll give him a pass. We're, we're going to push hard today against 7, 8, and 9. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Can I suggest to you that this is another aspect of wrath that is different in us than it is in God? It shouldn't be. We should be laboring much in our sanctification to have this same attitude against sin. All ungodliness and unrighteousness well, we kind of want to put it in layers. You know, this is really bad. This should be punished. We should put people in prison for this. We should have capital punishment for this. Aren't many saying such things today. But you know, this and that, eh, that you know, everybody, it's okay. When does this find justification in the scriptures? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. When we come to this opening section of the epistle, we'll find, as we see in so many other key places in God's Word, that theme, that truth of the spirituality of the law of God. That it doesn't touch merely even our actions, it touches our hearts, our attitudes that produce The actions. One of the reasons we get in trouble in committing sins is because we delay the battle. We don't do war against the thoughts. We don't preach to ourselves truth and say, No, I shouldn't even be thinking in this direction. God's wrath is against all ungodliness. I was thinking as I was preparing and collecting thoughts for today. I speak to parents often with regard to children and child rearing. You need to be consistent in your application of discipline. It's easy as a parent, you know, there you are. I mean, you're in the room, you're, let's really set this in the old days or something. You've come in from work, you're tired, you're reading the newspaper. And, you know, the two little kids are noisy. Eh, they're not overly noisy. It's it's not too bad and you're fine. And then they're, they're disobedient. I mean, they're, they disrespected their mom. Uh, or they said something to their sister. They shouldn't have said it. No problem. I'm still... It's a great article. But then they get too loud for you to concentrate. And, and, and it's starting to bug you. And so finally you do something. And you're angry when you do it. Well... Shouldn't you have had a a righteous indignation against the first part of that little episode when they were doing something wrong? Shouldn't you have calmly addressed the situation to speak to what was right? How they should be acting, how they should be speaking to one another, etc., Until unless you, you waited until you were angry and it was inconveniencing you? Our views of sin. And you see then, to finish that for the parents and so forth, then your child learns it doesn't matter whether what I'm doing is right or wrong. What matters is the finding and knowing, anticipating the line which dad's going to blow it. And and then he's going to be angry and come deal with this thing. And so they're looking at you as a, thermometer, as it were, instead of looking at principles and looking at what's really right and what's really wrong and what I should be doing and should not be doing. God isn't like that. God doesn't say, well, sin can be left alone till it reaches a certain point. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. And Paul's going to unfold that from the rest of chapter 1 through chapter 2 and the opening section of chapter 3 and powerfully as a lawyer in the highest courtroom of all making the case that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The most morally upright and apparently pure among us outside of Jesus Christ is a rebel deserving of eternity in God's hell. Because God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. So now we come to those terms. I do not intend an exhaustive study and Collecting all the commentary on these words. It is fruitful in its own right. But I think the truth underneath is really simple enough. When you look at the terms ungodliness and unrighteousness, many will point out that the distinction as they're brought together here seems to be that distinction that we so often place upon the Ten Commandments when we look at them and speak of the the two tables of the law. Those commandments that have reference to our lives and our attitudes toward God. And those commandments that have their primary focus with regard to our lives and our attitudes and our actions toward our neighbor. And you can see that summarized again in so many other places in Scripture. When the lawyer comes and asks Christ, which is the great commandment in the law, immediately he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And I think this is a distinction that clearly is and should be understood in these words. There are others that come and you can look at it and press it, perhaps, in a sense, as it were, into the realm of nature versus deeds. Our deeds are unrighteous because our nature is ungodly. I say there's just the sense in which that carries through, but yet the sense is there. Because in our actual transgressions against God, in our ungodliness in that realm, once we are alienated and separated from God, the origin of life, the giver of life, then we're, we're alienated from everything else. And so the actions and the sins we commit one against another, those visible, tangible things in this earth, flow from the fact that we're ungodly. We're sinners against God in all those ways and areas that can't necessarily be seen. And So I think here we have to understand the whole of our condition as sinners. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached four messages on this one verse. I read all four of them uh, in preparation for today. Um, What a servant in the middle part of the 20th century. Lloyd-Jones was hammering home the truth that the order here, the order is important Now often, and again, he's in a a mid-20th century time frame, looking at the liberal church of just the the few previous decades and and all the corruption that it had brought into the church in the middle 20th century. And he said, what folly when we try and look at this second thing only, our sins against one another, and we think somehow we we can clean up and fix this, and we don't have to really touch this first part about ungodliness. About our sins against God. And he said, this is the root of the whole matter. And of course, you can go back as he did to give reference to the, to the social gospel of the liberals at the turn of the century. You know, we're going we're to clean up all the bad places in the world by going forth in Jesus' name but with good deeds, with deeds of charity and mercy. And we're going we're gonna to talk about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And we're, and we're going we're gonna to wash the outside of the cup. Or to put it in the language that Christ used with the Pharisees, we're going to scrub and polish the sepulchers. Get the grave markers all pristine and shiny white. And forget that inside are dead men's bones. He spoke about the institutions that had come up, and he he mentioned the YMCA. I wonder if I took a survey today, how many people in here would know what the C in that stands for? I mean, now it's just, you go to the Y. It was the Young Men's Christian Association. And he said, for all the good that they sought to do and, and its founding and bringing young men off the streets and giving them constructive activities and instruction and so forth, they kind of got lost in the, the outward stuff. Cleaning up their lives, giving them a purpose, teaching them teamwork, get, get them exercise, let them, let them come in here and go swimming or play basketball instead of robbing, I don't know, candy stores. <laughs> he spoke of the salvation army many today know it would dedicate or would donate to it and the help they give to those in need both just tangible needs on a regular basis or whether it be in crisis or after disaster again nothing against those deeds of mercy but he said they lost the preaching of the gospel And as he hinted at some of these tendencies coming into the church, well, with another half century gone by, we can look back and I just think of the current need and in some ways devastation of the ecclesiastical landscape in some circles. And you wonder how many well-intentioned, quote, Bible-believing Christians Began to focus on, well, let's just borrow a word, principles. And give a lot of instruction on how to live. And this stuff is wrong and you don't do that. And this stuff is good and you need to do that. And raise a generation on doing the right thing. Without ever preaching to them their need of Christ. It can even come down to an imbalanced emphasis on God's work in us. I was reading someone, I can't recall who it was, but just a week or so ago, talking about how we go forth with the phrase, what would Jesus do? Got to figure out what I need to do in this circumstance and in that circumstance. And we go forth trying to wage Christian warfare, as it were, with those terms, and we don't come with the phrase, what has Jesus done? We don't understand the Gospel. And you see, it's only when somebody understands their need. They understand the ungodliness that is producing the unrighteousness, and that they in themselves are powerless To do anything to change. God's wrath is revealed against not merely the big outward things that we mess up and do. God's wrath is revealed against the fact that daily, hourly, moment by moment, We fail to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the root of every other problem. The wonder of the message that Paul is so burdened to unfold in Romans. It's no wonder that God is... Angry at sin. The wonder is that God did not immediately send forth the penalty of the broken covenant of works and consign mankind immediately into eternity and outer darkness in God's hell. That would have been expected. That's what the law demands. But God in His sovereignty and in His love brought alongside that that we call the covenant of works. That that we see so awfully displayed in Romans one eighteen to 3.20. He brought alongside of it the covenant of grace. That the just, and we didn't take a lot of time to dwell on this, but a lot of discussion about the word order. As Paul brings in that quotation from Habakkuk. The just shall live by faith. The just, or the just by faith, shall live. And some get caught up in thinking, is, is Paul in that theme talking about sanctification? This is how justified people live? No. He's talking about the big picture. What is the outline of Romans? Sin, condemnation, and what in the first man? Death. And the second part of the book, the biggest part of the book, is righteousness, justification, and Life in the second man. And as it puts that theme from faith to faith, from start to finish, justification is by faith alone. The just by faith, this gospel of Christ that is the power of God into salvation, the just by faith shall live. Here's the wonder of the Gospel. We're dead. And Adam all died. We're dead in trespasses and sins. To use Paul's phrase from Ephesians, we're children of wrath. Rightly so. Deservedly so. The power and wisdom of God is that God has provided in sending a second man his only begotten son took into union with himself our nature to do what two things they both have reference to the law that which condemns us to bear the penalty of our transgressions, of all our ungodliness and all our unrighteousness. Christ has, as we sing those precious words and meditations of Top Lady, He has borne for me the whole of wrath divine. And He is also for me Fulfilled that very law. That the smile of heaven might be placed upon me. Here's the wonder and the power of the gospel. The just by faith shall live. Paul, why are you not ashamed of this? Why are you overwhelmed with this? Because this is the power of God and to salvation to everyone that believes. How and why do you understand this so? Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And if we think that through as He's getting ready to do with us, then we see our hopelessness. Why do people fight the gospel? Why would they fight the preaching of wrath? Why would they fight the preaching of the shed blood of Jesus? Of the atoning work of Jesus? When I worked at the retirement community in the early years of our ministry here, there were some of the residents you Interact with a little more than others. A couple of couples that were very kind folks. um, Not all were kind. Some were pretty cranky and nothing pleased them. And Others, you know, spill stuff all over them, no problem. You know, they're great. One of these couples, the man had been a deacon under Harry Emerson Fosdick. Some of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet lost if you don't know who harry Mitson Fosdick was well um, the leader champion, mouthpiece of liberalism modernism in the first part of the 20th century There's another gentleman i don't know his particular well he wasn't with Fosdick but i knew he was in a mainline liberal church he was in the lobby one day i was working at the desk speaking to someone else He might have been getting to that age where his hearing was going a little bit, right? Speaking a little loud in the lobby. And he just, almost countenance changed from his normal demeanor and began to speak very harshly about not liking a religion of blood. These people that want to talk about blood. Blood. wanted to take him the gospel song we teach our children what can wash away my sins nothing but the blood of jesus why is it that the liberals began to cast off these uncomfortable truths Well, they set themselves up as the arbiters of what truth is. If we take God at His word, let Him be the final arbiter of truth. We can have the precious position and understanding of letting this Bible say everything it says about me and my sinfulness, everything it says about my inability to do anything to fix myself, everything about the fact that even my righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. And take the truth of God revealing that He is angry at this sin. And then to understand and take the truth that He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish what is perishing but enduring wrath and have everlasting The wonder of Romans 321 till the end of the book is built on the reality, the awful reality of Romans 118 to 320. Outside of Christ, we're children of wrath, and deservedly so. And we can't fix ourselves. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, has sent his Son. And his Son has endured the whole of wrath divine. How then can wrath on me take place if sheltered in his righteousness and sprinkled with his, yes, blood The good news is wonderful because the bad news is real. And we must understand and take in and believe the bad news ere we will ever flee to Christ to be recipients of the good news. So let us not shriek back from wrath. Let us in full understanding of that marvel that where sin abounded, grace super abounded. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we come to a God indeed of wrath. But a God of grace. Lord, we believe it true what we sing. The wonders of your grace above your other wonders shine. We were children of wrath. The man writing these words was not in a self-righteous fit of temper trying to beat up the Romans. He was a man that said of himself he was the chief of sinners. But he had a glorious message of good news to tell all his fellow sinners. Lord, give us such grace. Give us such understanding. Let us not be contented with trying to fix the outside of the cup and not understand the gospel itself. Lord, I pray if there are any here today, young or old, that are coordinating life and their life choices and their activities according to Good versus bad. And yet they have not come to understand they need to be born again. They need to be born from above. They need to pass from death unto life. That the just by faith shall live. And Lord, breathe such life and understanding into that soul. Lord, take us from this place, rejoicing in the power and wonder of the gospel. And bring us this evening, as we come around your table, to marvel, even as we take up those elements of a broken body and shed blood, that the wrath that fell on Jesus is never going to fall on us. Lord, give us eagerness to commemorate our Lord's death. Lord, bless us now as we part one from another, we ask. In Jesus' worthy name.